Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. There's a line in this song that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And you're probably thinking, Ebenezer Scrooge? I didn't know he was in the Bible. And Ebenezer means a rock of remembrance. There's many times in the Old Testament that God would move and work and he didn't want Israel to forget what he had done and so he would tell them, uh, each of you go and collect a stone, one from each tribe, and they would take these 12 stones and they would set them up in a, as a memorial so that you would remember how the Lord worked and moved in your life. And that's an Ebenezer. And all of us should have those. We can look at moments in our lives as followers of Jesus where we, we have seen the Lord move and work and that's an Ebenezer to us. So I wanted to read something that I wrote a few years ago. That Facebook memories, isn't that just great? Brings back some of the cool things and sometimes not the not so cool things. Sometimes one of the worst phone calls you can receive will be the beginning of God's greatest work in you, through you, and for you. We cannot share the greatness of God out of our intellect only. Our knowledge of him cannot outweigh our experience in him. And we, when we've truly experienced his grace, his love, his mercy, redemption, and restoration, that is the part of our testimony that cannot be fully explained with words. There will be times that the present will not make sense. And keep reminding yourself of his work in your life before and hold on to the hope of his promise to come. So today's my D-Day. Today's my diagnosis day. Nine years ago, today I was diagnosed with cancer and uh, a season of my life that changed my life forever. And, and my four kids are my rocks of remembrance. They're my Ebenezers. And I think I'll start referring to them as such. Come here, Ebenezer. One, two, three, four. <clears throat> when I became a father and I was... and and Dayton, my oldest, when I became a father, he's my rock of remembrance of my salvation. I was not walking with the Lord, and then I became a father, and for me, I didn't understand a father's love. I had to become a father to understand a father's love. So when people say, God loves you like a father, that was a difficult process for me. And so I look at my son, who is actually at another church, worshiping right now, serving, uh, on the drum kit, and so I see him, and me and my wife look at each other, and in the, in the middle of great sin, God does a work, and we are blessed every time we see him serve people worship, and then Kaylin is our rock remembrance of really getting involved in the church, I think, when we truly felt called. We were serving every way possible. They let us sweep, mop, run an event for kids, help in the youth group. We tried to do everything that we could. Um, and for some reason, they put up with a couple young punks that had no idea what to do. Um, they just loved on us. And so when we think about serving the church and how we got involved, Kay's our rock of remembrance there. Ryan, um, we gave birth to Ryan, we, because I had a lot to do with that, <clears throat> in my first year of Bible college when we knew we were answering a call to full-time ministry. And so 
I said, if, if God is sending us into ministry, I want to be equipped. And so I went to college, worked a full-time job, worked nights, uh, took 18, 21 credit hours a semester, and somehow managed to pull decent grades. And, and that was a really rough first year, and, and that's when Ryan was born. And so she's our rock of remembrance when we see God call us into full-time ministry. And, and shortly after taking our first ministry job, and that's when I was diagnosed nine years ago. It was three months into our first ministry, first full-time ministry position. And we always wanted four kids. That was a big thing on me and Ashley's heart. We kind of knew uh, if we were having three, we were having four. And, and so when the doctor said, hey, because of your cancer and because of the chemotherapy, you'll probably never have kids again, we struggled with that. We struggled with that idea because it was taken from us. And so we, but we just surrendered it to the Lord and said, this is the Lord working in our life. That's, that's a pretty clear closed door uh, when you have to go through cancer. And so, but it was a hard decision. It was a hard moment and we walked that. And then a year after all the chemo and everything was done, yeah, I've told the story before, but we were sitting on the front porch and she showed me a picture of another positive pregnancy test because all her friends were getting pregnant. They didn't have cable or something. I don't know. I don't know if they know what causes that, but so she shows me this picture and I said, I'm so sorry. I said, who is it now? Like, what friend do I want to call and yell at? And she just started crying. She said, it's me. And so little Emmy is our rock of remembrance that God will deliver us. And I didn't know if I was going to make it through cancer or not. And either way, she was still our rock of remembrance. And she knows it too. She'll tell you. She'll say, like, doctor said no more kids. But God said, here's Emmy. I think she knows it too much. And so look at your life and understand what are those rock of remembrances in your life? Because life gets hard and you're going to get really bad phone calls. And you're going to lose loved ones. And you have to hold on to those promises. And sometimes those things can, can cause us to overshadow and forget about them. But if we have those rocks of remembrance in our life, that no matter what anybody says, attacks our faith, attacks the word of God, I got four rocks of remembrance in my life that I can point to that God worked and moved in my life. And I think it had to be my kids because I needed a daily reminder that God's still working. And so with that, uh, thanks for coming. Have a great night. <laughs> Let's pray and start over. Father, we love you. And let us never forget how you move and work in our life sometimes in very big ways, sometimes very small ways, and just the normal daily. But let us never forget, let us never become numb to the moving of your spirit and the working of your will in and through our life. And I pray that you would give each of us new rocks of remembrance of how we continually look at your work in our life. No matter how low the valley, no matter how dark life gets, you are there with us. And let us hold fast. And Father, we just thank you now for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so Cal Kids, uh, some very infectious, crazy, whatever, I don't know what it is, most of our Cal kids are sick today, so that's why we have just nursery. So if you have kids in here, they are more than welcome. 
Um, now, the rest of you, not so much, but the kids are welcome. You know, Jesus said, let the little kids come to me. If they're loud, they're loud. If they scream and cry, well, half of you scream and cry. It's okay. You know, uh, first service, somebody's like, oh, they slept through it. It was great. And I was like, well, that's most of first service. So not a problem at all. So, but if they're here, again, my heart, regardless if Cal Kids is open or not, is if we want a nice, quiet, orderly church that kids are not allowed and students can't be who they are, uh, then you have a church that has no future. So if, if students want to get loud and rambunctious on a Wednesday night here, or if kids sitting with their parents and get a little loud, I'm okay with that. Because one of the best things is for a kid to be able to look over at mom and dad, even though they probably don't understand the depths of this and, and even what this weird guy up there is saying. I don't even remember what the pastor used to preach about when I was a kid. But I remember seeing my grandparents sitting there with their Bible open, listening. And I remember their love for me. And so some of the best things that you can do is just example your faith to your kids. It is far more caught than it is taught. And the, the mentality that, oh, I'll just send them to youth group or I'll put them in a Christian school or da-da-da, those are all good, positive things. But parents are the most influential people in any kid's life. And so keep pouring into them. Um, and not only when they're just in school, but I'm 30-something, and I'm still somebody's baby boy. And I still need a mom and a dad. And so keep loving your kids. So we are in a sermon series talking about unexpected. We've got a couple more weeks of this. Unexpected, kingdom living in an earthly reality. And one of the things, even though we're starting chapter 20, this is continuing a conversation that Jesus is right in the middle of. So just because there's a chapter break or a verse break in Scripture, those were added in like the 1500s. It wasn't like John was thinking, John 3.16, they're going to love this. That didn't exist when he wrote it. Right? And so even though we see a division there between the chapters, uh, those are just reference marks. That doesn't mean there's a division in the thoughts of what is going on. And so Jesus is still answering the question to Peter that he asked back up in 1927. We have left everything, Peter's talking to Jesus, to follow you. What then will we have? And Jesus spoke a lot in parables. We've talked about that. We did a whole series talking about parables. And I love the ones where he said, well, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he describes and he uses everyday normal things about what the kingdom was like so that his hearers could understand. And the key is, if we don't know much about the kingdom, how could we ever be expected to be kingdom living? So that's the heart. I mean, when he says, hey, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, it's time to tune in. Because the kingdom is under a different set of rules and standards. There's a different value system here. And if we, as followers of Jesus, trying to follow the Lord uh, with our lives, it's probably good to understand the kingdom. And who better to hear it than from the king? And to say, hey, this is how we operate. As kingdom citizens, this is what it looks like. It's going to look different than the world around us. But you're not of that kingdom. You're just an alien, a sojourner, just passing through. And so to press in, starting in verse 1, chapter 20, this is a parable that he's using right after uh, answering Peter. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, well, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Verse 9, and when the hired, and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, and each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heats. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. I love this parable because the vineyard and the, and the harvesting of grapes was a very common thing that happened in this culture. It's pretty much all they really drink, you know, and that's what, you know, there's a big debate, you know, Jesus drank wine, so can we drink alcohol? And, and then you got both sides of the fence. Well, they all drink wine, but it was diluted and da 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 They drink wine, okay? It was a common thing. The water, not so uh, safe, didn't have much purifying, so sometimes they would dilute it. <laughs> sometimes not. It happens. But harvesting these grapes was a normal yearly thing. And in Israel, it was in like later August because of the rainy season. And what would happen, they'd have these vineyards out there and you'd have watchmen not looking at the grapes, really nothing you can do about that. But they're looking at the weather coming in and they wanted to get the harvest in before the rains came. Because the rains came, it would destroy the harvest, it would destroy the crop. And so you're just out there waiting, and once you start to see a little thunder, a little bit of lightning off in the distance, then it was game on. All hands on deck. You're running into the marketplace, and you're hiring anybody that you can. Again, a normal thing in this culture. You might not have had a set occupation, but you were just a general laborer, and you'd hang out in the marketplace, and if anybody that had a project going on needed help, you could get hired that day. Uh, we've seen that when I was in Honduras. There'd be a place... Uh, that you could go, and if you needed a few people to help you work that day, you could hire them. And they had all kinds of skills and trades and just a general laborer. And so all this, very normal to the culture and the context. And what I love about that is, so when Jesus is speaking all these things, everybody would have recognized what was going on. Everybody, oh yeah, I I've done that. I was a vineyard guy. I was, I was a guy that got brought in and harvested up like that was last year. I, I understand this. And they get it. And so there's five times throughout the day that the master, the vineyard owner goes out into the marketplace and hires people. And so I'm going to geek out a little bit. We're going to talk about a Jewish day because it's a little different than what we're used to. So the Jewish day, it starts at sunset and it goes until sunset again. That's a full day in the Jewish culture. Unlike us who have this like mysterious midnight hour. 
that starts the new day. Like, I resonate with the Jewish people. Like, that's an easy sign. The sun goes down, okay, new day, here we go. Not sun up, sun down. And those are key things, especially when he gets to the end of Jesus' life, which starts, uh, the last week starts next chapter in 21. And so to understand, you know, he was in the tomb three days, but you have to understand Jewish context, not our modern day context, right? So a Jewish day, sunset to sunset, and it was split into eight equal parts. That's four and four, see? That's how I got through math class. If it was more than 20, I didn't have enough fingers and toes, man. It was too hard. But the, so a sunset to sunset. So the first part was first watch to sunset. First watch is sunset to 9 p.m. So not first watch like the little breakfast place we have. If they were Jewish, it would be more of like a late night dinner place to go to, right? So from sunset to 9 p.m., that was called first watch. And then second watch was 9 p.m. to midnight. And then third watch, midnight to 3. And then fourth watch was the 3 a.m., to sunrise. We'll see some of that verbiage when Jesus was praying in the garden. That it was through one of these watches that they were praying. And it's like, well, no wonder Peter fell asleep. Like, who holds a prayer meeting at like three in the morning? <laughs> You're bound to fall asleep at something like that. And then when sunrise would happen, that would start the first hour. Sunrise to 9 a.m. And then the third hour was 9 a.m. to noon. Sixth hour was noon to three. Ninth hour, 3 p.m., back to sunset, and that would start first watch, right? So how they uh, uh, celebrated Passover and all of that, it was, that's why it's a little bit different for us than just to calling it a Saturday because they go sunset to sunset. And so the, Jesus is saying this master, this vineyard owner is going out first early in the morning. Hey, we, we got a harvest here. We need to get in. He goes out early in the morning. He's hiring people. And then at almost hour of the day, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, he's hiring people, even the 11th hour, meaning there's one hour left of work to do. Now, that's when I like to get hired. A little bit of work, a whole lot of pay, I'm your man. Okay, all right, there we go. If you need a business card, just let me know. No, but, and so you see him going five times into the marketplace, and he keeps saying, why are you standing around idle? You know, this, again, and all hands on deck, it didn't matter if you were uh, if you had another job, if you had available time, you could get hired. This would be your little part-time, little side gig, little side hustle here, little, little great vineyard action there to make a little side money that you don't tell your wife about. No, no, don't, don't do that. And so he goes in and he keeps asking, why are you standing around idle? There's plenty of work to do. What are you standing around for? And it takes me clear back to Matthew 9 where Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But there is plenty of work, and there's a whole sermon that we could talk about there, but for another time. And we see that at the end of the day, sun's going down, call them all in, pay them up, send them home. And he says, but I want you to start with those that were hired last. They've only been here an hour. Start with them, and I want you to give them a denarius. So again, that, a denarius, that was the typical wage for one day's of work. You know, my grandpa told me back in the day, he's like, we used to make a dollar a day. Well, grandpa, that's when bread was like a nickel and gas, you know, you didn't even have cars and they gave milk away for free. Like cost of living's a little different now. But in this culture, a denarius a day was a very fair, normal wage for a day labor. So again, the master's not being, you know, uh, 
uh, cheap is the way to put it, I guess. He's not trying to get more work, less pay type thing. He's going to pay what it's worth. And, but he starts with the last that were only there for an hour, and he gives them a denarius. That's my kind of job right there. I only worked one hour of the day, and I get a full day's wage. Like, I would have walked home pretty happy about that. Or, oh, I only worked about three hours, and I got a full day's wage. I only worked about half the day, but full day. Like, I was able to get some stuff done around the house, watch a couple soap operas, you know, then go to work, get paid full day. Perfect. But could you imagine being at the end of the line? And you've been there all day long. Like, you, you smell really bad because of this scorching heat. You got a little bit of a sunburn. Fingers are stained from grape juice all over the place. Like, you don't even want to look at another grape or raisin. You're looking more like a raisin than a grape. Like, it is. And then you're just watching everybody else get paid. And I can understand the same thought would hit my mind. Man, if that guy only worked an hour or two or three and he got a full day's wage, what am I going to get? I mean, if that's what he's paying for guys that just worked a little bit, he's going to be shelling out some bread for those that worked a lot. I'd be excited. And then they walk up, and the ones, and, and we don't know how many people there were. This could have been a long process. You know, was it 100 people? Was it 20 people? Could have been kind of a process. And that they're sitting here thinking and wondering and seeing what's going on, and as other people are leaving, kind of doing one of those, you know, like at Christmas when you were a kid, looking over there to see what your siblings got. What'd you get in your stocking? What'd you get over there? You, a little comparing, contrasting. Oh, if they gave you that, and I know how horrible you are, I'm going to make out really good. Don't act like you're, I'm the only one that's done that. Come on, you're a bunch of sinners just like me. And then you see, you get up there and, and be like, all right, I've been here all day, and he lays a denarius in your hand. I'd have chucked that right back at him. You know, he'd be like, I've been here all day, and you've paid everybody else who's done less work the exact same. Because the order of payment was important, that he wanted those hired men that were hired first to wait. And they gave time for them to process and understand what was going on. The problem is they gave time for their pride and their ego and their selfishness. And so what we do in the waiting matters. Same thing for these men, same thing for us. There were all between, and this is not original, this is a Paul Tripp ism that I like, he says, we're all between the already and the not yet. We all live in that. It's this weird little middle ground between the already, Christ already came, already paid for our sin, already filled us with the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus. We live between that and the not yet. He hasn't returned yet. He hasn't put an end to sin yet. He hasn't finished up the story of this. And so we're smack dab right in the middle of the already and the not yet theologically. But even in our lives, you might be in a moment of already, not yet. So you might be uh, engaged to a young lad or a girl, and you, you, okay, we're already engaged, we've already been dating, we're already in love, but we're not married yet, and I'm waiting for that day. So you're in the middle there, or you're at school. You know you want to be a teacher, and so you're going to college, and, and it, I said it too, what in the world does this class have to do with what I am called to, and you just get frustrated my wife even said, she goes, that's when I dropped out. She went to college for like a semester. And when she got to Chicano literature, she's like, I'm out. If you want to be an elementary teacher. I still don't even know what that is. So if you know, let me know. But between the already and the not yet, like I know I'm going to be a teacher. I'm called to that, but I'm not there yet. We're... So somewhere in our lives, in different contexts, we're all there. And we're all waiting. But the manner in which we live in the waiting 
matters. How you handle yourself, how you carry yourself, your words, your actions, your attitudes, how we wait, the manner in which we wait, how we live, that matters. And see, these hired men, they first developed this selfish, false expectation in their waiting because they were seeing everybody else who worked less and they saw what they got paid and they thought, oh, I'm going to get paid more. Verse nine and, or 10 and 11 tells us that. They thought that they would receive more, and when they didn't and they received it, they grumbled and were prone to do the exact same thing in our life. When we set false expectations on ourselves, when we set false expectations on those around us, disappointment is soon to follow. And that's really, really hard. That we can be so prone that like, and this is where it starts. It starts here. We see some things going on and it's like, oh, okay, well, and then we have this false expectation. And we do it a lot in a lot of different areas of our life. Let's step into a couple of these. Let it be friendships. Let it be marriage. Let it be work life. And we're even going to talk about the church and in our faith. There's a lot of times that we will set false expectations. And when others around us in our sphere of influence that we're connected with in whatever this context would we, we would be in, when they fail to meet those, we just kind of think to ourselves, I thought it'd be different. Even those men walking at the end of the line, getting to the front and then getting a denarius, disappointed. I thought it'd be different. Didn't think it was going to be like this. Why is it like this? And then they start grumbling and they don't look internally. The first thing they look is outwardly. And we're prone to do the exact same things. So in our friendships, in our marriages, in our work life, even in our faith, in our church, we can think that. I just thought it'd be different. I thought having that friend or being married to this person or having this job, if I could just get that raise or that promotion, or if I could just get that position, everything will be better and it'll be different. And then you find out it's the exact same. Or we're getting this new pastor and everything's going to be great. And we just kind of sit here and thought, well, I thought it'd be different. I think in the very first Zoom interview when they saw me, I, I kind of apologized. I was like, hey, sorry, I'm not better looking. I know you thought this would be different, you know, but, but in, in, we're going we're gonna to dig deep into this, okay? And if I offend you, you're welcome. If your engagement, your involvement, your commitment to a friend is determined by their ability to meet your expectations, at the very least, that is an unhealthy mindset. And at the most, that is not kingdom living. If your engagement, involvement, commitment to your spouse in your marriage is determined by the expectations and their ability to meet your expectations, that's an unhealthy mindset. And that's not kingdom living. And, and I get it. You know, you get, you're dating, and then you hear about the wedding, and you get there, and then you have the honeymoon phase. They call it a phase for a reason that the expectation, the thinking that the honeymoon was going to be for the rest of the marriage, and when it doesn't meet that expectation, and then we get frustrated. Or, you know, when I got married, I thought, oh, I'm going to come home. Ashley's going to have this hot meal on the table. Not even that. She's going to bring it to me in my chair. Then as I'm watching TV, eating this phenomenal meal, she's going to rub my feet. <laughs> and when she's done rubbing my feet, she'll rub my back because it's been a hard day at the office. 
And then whatever I wanted, if I wanted a cold drink, it was going to be ice cold. And if I wanted a hot drink, it was going to be pipe. And I was going to be perfect. And, and I would have this little bell. <laughs> and my expectation absolutely has been met. No. <laughs> Everybody's going to be like, I'm calling Ashley right now. He's, he's lying. I'm calling a lie. But we can set these false expectations on our spouses and think, hey, this is, this is what I think uh, marriage should be. This is what my expectation from you should be as my spouse. And the problem is, is now, there should be good expectations. Yes, commitment, loyalty, trust, openness. But then we get into false expectations. It's like, I never really signed up for this. Like, the version of me that you want isn't me. And the frustrating uh, person that you're frustrated with isn't me. It's your false reality of what you think I should be. And, and we've done a few uh, marriage nights and previous ministries as we have one coming up. Hope you're going to be a part of it. Uh, the coffee and the desserts alone are going to be phenomenal. Speaking, coffee desserts, right? Okay. Honestly... And we walked through some marriages and different uh, counseling sessions, and we've been a part of marriage nights. A lot of things boil down to somebody just had a false expectation of what the other one was supposed to do and be and what it was supposed to be like. And they don't know how to process that. And so if our commitment to our spouse is solely based on their ability to meet my false expectations, that's not kingdom living. Can you imagine that in a friendship? Like, I will be a good friend to you only if you're a good friend to me. Now, I might have done that when I played basketball in middle school, right? Because after about middle school, they don't need a five-foot-nine guy playing basketball. Like, it kind of stops right there. And we'd be in practice, and the coach would always tell us, find another gear. We had to run faster, run faster. But if I didn't see everybody else putting out that kind of effort, I'm not going to do that. Probably not the best uh, mentality as a team player on a team, and it's definitely not the mentality to have in kingdom living, in friendships, even in our marriages, where, okay, well, I, I will step up and be a good husband only if you're going to step up and be a good wife, or I will only be a good wife if you're going to step up and be a husband. And that false expectation, that false commitment on one another is going to lead to some problems. Let's keep walking it out. If our engagement, involvement, commitment to our work life is determined by others' ability to meet our expectation, so my boss has to be a great boss and then I'll work hard for him, you might have a lousy boss. That should not change your ability to work wholeheartedly. Because again, you're not working for him. You're working for Jesus. Go back to the spouse thing. Who's the most important person in your marriage? Jesus. Not your spouse. Jesus. Never let it be your spouse. That's a pressure and a burden that we, uh, as the other spouse, cannot carry, that my wife cannot carry. The most important person is Jesus. And so if we think, oh, if my boss will be a really good boss, then I'll work hard for him. That's not a good mentality. That's an unhealthy mentality because that means that, oh, if he's not that great of a boss, then I'm not going to do a whole lot. You get what you get. And you don't throw a fit. That's what we tell our kids, at least. One more, and this one's going to hurt. If your engagement, involvement, or commitment to the church is determined by others' ability to meet your expectations of what you, cha what you think church should be, that is unhealthy and that is not kingdom living. 
And there, I'm not saying here, there are a lot of pastors that I hear at conferences or on podcasts or blogs that talk about the pressure that they are under from their congregations to meet false expectations of what they want in their pastor. And that is really hard because if the pastor is working to suffice false expectations from the congregation, you know who he not who he is not following? The Lord. He's trying to keep his congregation happy. Like I try to tick them off every Sunday. It works. Set the bar low, nobody's, you know, disappointed. But that's a real struggle where, okay, if the preaching is good, if the guy, you know, he has some good truths, couple nuggets, kind of funny, keeps me awake, all right, then I'll be a part of it. Or if, if the ministry does this, and this is what I want to see for my kids, they need to do this, this, and this, and then we'll be a part of it. That's an unhealthy mindset, and it's not kingdom living. It was actually really encouraging this week. I sat down with Cliff, and uh, just every few weeks we get coffee together, and, and as the guy that, that I took over for, man, what wisdom. Already just a super godly, awesome dude but to be able to just glean his wisdom. And he just kept telling me, Nick, you have to do what the Lord is telling you to do and not what anybody else says. It's like, all right. But if I get in trouble, I'm pointing them to you, buddy. I'm just like, nope, this is Cliff's fault. No. But to really look at our lives and look at the different relationships and the context that we have, let it be friends, marriages, work, even our church. If our ability to commit to any of those is based on false expectations of them to be able to meet what we want to see in it, it's going to lead to failure. So even in our friendships, in our marriages, our work life, even in the church, where should our focus be? Jesus. All that you do, you we do unto the Lord, not to one another. And this is, this is, I think, what Paul was saying in Philippians 2. If I can turn there real quick. Go eat popcorn. There we go. Do nothing from a selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only at his own interest, but also the interest of others. So let it be a friendship. Let it be a marriage. Let it be in work. Let it even be in church. If something is going in a direction that I really wouldn't like it to be, it's not about me. Now, theologically, I get it. If I pull up a goat here and I'm going to slaughter it and we're going to sprinkle blood on you, okay, that's something different. But if it's a preference, and not just in church, if there's a preferential thing, and we're setting probably a false expectation, and false expectations always lead to failure. Because if, if my wife had this massive expectation that she wants this, like, Fabio-looking dude with long hair and a six-pack. Like, I need a wig and, like, uh, some Dr. Pepper. Like, that's about the only kind of long hair six-pack she's getting, right? Like, it's, it's not getting better. <laughs> this is the best it's getting. This is it. And I use the marriage a lot because, one, we have a marriage night coming up, but understand how it impacts other areas of our life, that we can't set those on each other but we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So false expectations always lead to failure. So what are we to do? Where, where, where's our focus at? And, and this is one of those things because for me, I get it. I understand it, you know, and uh, you get what you deserve. And that's called karma. 
problem is, is that's kind of a Hindu-Buddhist uh, theology right there. But I get it. And we have rules and laws that are based that way. Like if you speed, you will get a ticket. You get what you deserve. If you steal from somebody, you will get in trouble. You'll go to prison. That's what you get what you deserve. If you murder somebody, you're really going to go to prison or more. You get what you deserve. Your action is, your consequence is based upon your action. The problem is we can't let that mentality infiltrate our faith. And this is what these people, these guys that were hired first, paid last, this is what they were basing everything on. Their false expectation was, he's going to pay us, we are going to get what we deserve. Now, if they worked the one hour and they got that, then that has to mean we're going to get paid more. And so they had this kind of karma, you get what you deserve, and we can't, we have to protect this mentality from infecting the church. Because the question, why do we want karma when we have the grace of Jesus Christ? And if you, if you really want to get what you deserve, if you feel like you're being treated unfairly from the Lord, and you, you know what, I, des- I am not getting what I deserve. You're absolutely right. What you deserve is to be separated from God eternally because of your sin. But he is showing you mercy, meaning he is not giving you what you do deserve. You deserve to be eternally separated from him. But he's showing you grace by giving you what you don't deserve. And so why do we want karma when we have grace so much greater, you know? And so what I love about it with grace is that God deals with us based on who he is, not on us. And thank the Lord, because I know some of you people. No, teasing. If God dealt with me based on who I am, like if you knew the brokenness of my life, you'd find another pastor. I've said it. And if we knew all of your brokenness, we wouldn't allow you in the church. But here we are, all in our brokenness, all in our sin, all in understanding the grace of God. That he deals with us based on who he is, his character, his being, his essence, not on us. And that is a promise. That's a hope that we have. And so the hope and the promise is that Jesus is never going to be unfair to us, right? So those guys that got paid last, hired first, when they walked up and the denarius hit their hand, that was fair. Why? Because they agreed to it. When I got hired, I was a pediatric nurse before I got into ministry. Um, And my first job was in a clinic. Um, I won't make the stabbing babies joke, but it was a great job. I loved it. And I was hired Monday through Friday, five days a week, right? Monday through Friday. I worked five days a week. But every other nurse in that clinic, and there was a few, they only worked four days a week. And it didn't take me long to notice. Why does everybody else get three days off a week and I only get two days off a week? And there came a day that I mustered up a little bit of courage to finally ask the doctor, hey, and we're still good friends, everything's fine. I said, hey, I'm just asking, help me understand, why does everybody else get three days off and I only get two days off? Like, did I do something wrong? Is this like a, you know, I know I'm new to the field. Is it just because I'm green? Like, just help me understand. And he said, what wrong am I doing? Did we not agree to this position, both of us, that it would be five days a week? Yep, thank you. Thank you for your time. And just walked away. Like, I'm not going to fight that because this is what we agreed on. He was not being unfair to me. Just because he hired that nurse four days a week and me five days a week didn't change what he gave me. 
And so for us, God is dealing with, based on who he is, in the agreement to it, that he's not being unfair. So the hope, the promise that we have is when Jesus deals with us, he's not being unfair. He's not being unjust. And here's the problem. Here's the issue, though, that we need to struggle and process through. He may, again, for his own purpose, his own will, his own design, his own pleasure, show greater blessings on someone else who seems less deserving. So he'll never be unfair to us. But just as this master said, can I not choose to do with whatever is mine? And if everything is the Lord's, is it not within his scope of practice to be able to give more blessing to someone even undeserving? Well, it has to be undeserving or it wouldn't be called a blessing or grace. If it was deserved, that's called a wage. And so he's absolutely gracious to us, but just because he's more gracious to someone else doesn't make him unbecoming of his character. And so the hope and the promise is he will absolutely be fair. I would say he's very unfair in the sense that he showered us with grace and mercy. But because he shows more blessing to someone else, we have to process through that. And it's for his will, his good pleasure, that he's going to do that. And so there's going to be, in kingdom living, I think in the full kingdom when we're with him, there's going to be some unexpected grace. We're going to be standing there, we're going to think, and that's going to be hard for us. So we have to process that. You know, you think of like Billy Graham, phenomenal ministry, even after he passed, still no accusation or anything that came up, just a godly individual, Pro- probably preached to millions and millions came to the Lord through his ministry, phenomenal. And we think, oh, he's going to be one of the 24 elders around the throne, throwing crowns down at the Lord. And then there's us. And if we can just get a seat in the very back, we're going to be doing good, right? Like, who am I compared to a Billy Graham? But I think some of the people that are going to be closest to the throne of God, is this going to be the single mom or the dad working two jobs or the grandparent raising their kid or a foster mom or foster dad, somebody's just serving within their little sphere of influence and giving unto the Lord what they have and serving with everything that they do. And they're going to, I think there's going to be a whole lot of no names that we're going to see in the kingdom because God loves to shower unexpected grace. And so if it's, if it's based on what we think God should do and he does something different, the urge is we're going to have to fight that bitterness. So think about that. We're not talking about a negative thing, a sinful thing, and a, and a moral thing. We're talking about God is showering blessing on somebody else. But because God did something different than what I think, because I had some false expectation, I am growing bitter, divisive, and, and I'm not content because what God is doing in somebody else's life. Because the first thing we want to say is, well, why don't you do that in my life? Why, why is, I know that person. Sorry to point at you. Sorry. <laughs> he could beat me up and I don't want to call him out like that. No. It's like, why does God want to bless him and not me? Like, I know him. I know what he does. Why is God showering him with blessing? I'm way better. And then we start comparing and competing and we're getting frustrated and bitter at God for the very work of God in other people's lives. That's a serious sin, to get frustrated and hurt by the work of God. That he, oh, He's showing grace to someone, and we're upset. That's what Jonah did. 
Jonah did not want the Ninevites to be saved. He did not want God to show them mercy. He wanted them to be utterly destroyed. That's why he didn't want even go to preach. And even when he got up on his little hill to watch this destruction go on and it never happened, he grew bitter at God because God showed mercy. And we're just as bad as Jonah. And we struggle and we fight through those things. Or we see blessing that God has in somebody else's life. Or we see ministry opportunities in somebody else's life. We see giftings in somebody else's life. And we get frustrated because that's not me. You're right, it's not you. Thank the Lord that it's not you. So how do we fight this? How do we fight? Okay, what does kingdom living look like in moments like these where God is showing greater blessing on others? Got three points. First, express gratitude. I think those guys that were hired first, paid last, when they got up there and the denarius hit their hand, they should have been like, you're a man of your word. Because in this culture, there'd be times they would work all day and they'd get back and be like, yeah, you're kind of lazy. You're getting half. And there were even times you wouldn't get paid at all. They could just rip you off. And what are you going to do about it? Find a lawyer? I mean, there was no wage law at this time. And, and you couldn't fight him. He was rich, more powerful. There's nothing you could do about it. You just walk away. Sunburnt, smelling like grapes. But when that denarius hit their hand, they should have been like, thank you. You're a man of your word. You said you'd pay me a denarius a day if I worked. I worked, and there it is. And then they should have continued and thought, and it is an honor to work for such a generous man because, like, even though we agreed upon this, you paid everybody else who worked less, you paid them just the same. You didn't have to do that. You had every right to pay them less. Yeah, he did. But that's not what he wanted to do. But just because what they were given was the same, even though the work was different, didn't make that any less, any greater. So we express gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord. Because you can never critique and be thankful at the same time. Try it with your wife or your spouse. You know, so if I wake up one morning and my wife made pancakes, and I walk in, thank you for waking up early and making me pancakes, even though they're burnt and they're rock hard and they smell like a foot. Does she feel appreciated? She should. Who else is going to correct her? No. <laughs> Express gratitude. You can't be critical and nitpicking and, and, and thankful at the same time. And we do it all the time to the Lord. We need to express gratitude that we serve such a generous God. Because that's one of the areas that Satan attacked Adam and Eve was for them to attack God's generosity. He said you could eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then when Satan hit, he said, oh, you can't eat from the trees in the garden? And then Eve got real vague and crazy. She attacked God's generosity. He gave every tree but one. But they, the first thing they did is, why is it the Lord holding this back? Why is he keeping that from me? Is, that, is this a blessing that other people get that I don't get? And we do that all the time. That it was actually a protection in God saying no. And so we need to express gratitude. We need to fight comparison. What others have been given does not negate or increase what God has given us. So if he has blessed you with something, and then he blesses somebody else more, more ministry, more giftings, more you know, time, talent, treasure, whatever it is. It doesn't negate, doesn't increase. So you can't take your giftings and what you've been blessed with and look at somebody else and be like, oh, look what he has. He had nothing compared to me. That doesn't make that greater. I think it actually makes it worse. And we try to compare one another 
And we, and I, I get it. You know, if like I want to try to make myself look better, I just need to stand around a lot of ugly people. That's my only hope. Because we're, again, we're not changing this. But if I want my wife to look at me and be like, wow, he really is good looking, I just need a lot of ugly people to stand behind me. Taking applications. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay, keep moving. Here we go. <laughs> but we're so quick to compare one another. We're quick to compare what God has given us and blessed us with and opportunities and say, why, why don't I have that? And, and, we, and we fight. And again, now we have division and bitterness, not through bad things, through good things. And so here's a foothold of the enemy that we're going to battle each other over what? Blessings from God. So we can't compare and contrast again. It's all about keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. And the last one, celebrate others. When God blesses someone else in the body of Christ, celebrate that. Because even though he has blessed that one person, if there's a blessing to someone in as a part of the body of Christ, that's a blessing to the whole body of Christ. See what I'm saying? So Romans 12 says, having gifts that differ, we're going to have different gifts, and we should. Like there are certain gifts I do not have. Like if I even walk close to the children's ministry checkout area, I break out in a cold sweat. It is. It's bad. That is not my gifting. I cannot sit there and hold babies all day. Not at all. Little kids, oh man, they scare me. They're outnumbered, they're smarter. Like, I can't do it, I can't do it. It is not my ministry gifting, but my wife, all day long, she could be in a nursery, poopy diapers, all that craziness, I can't do it. I'm not gifted that way, she is. And so we have these differing gifts, so we're having gifts differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Again, I was talking to Cliff and he was talking about things that were on his heart and ministry giftings. And he says, I just don't want to bury my gifts. I want to use it. And it goes back to the parable of the talents. So he gives some five, some three. And the guy that had one was so scared that he just, he just buried it instead. That he didn't want to use it. And so that's Paul talking about our giftings that differ according to the grace given us. And now here's Peter, another pillar in the early church, 1 Peter 4.10 as each has received a gift, so everybody has a spiritual gifting. If you don't know it, that maybe, you might not know it. But press into the Lord and, and, and seek him. If he's the one that gives good gifts, he's probably the one that could tell you what your spiritual gifting is. So we all have at least one, some of us a couple more, and there's not one spiritual gifting that we all have. Get theological on you there. They're all gonna be different, and that's fine. And so we have gifts that are different, and as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. The reason that you have been blessed with a spiritual gifting is to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, and I love that. So whatever your gifting is, use it to serve the body. That's how you are a good steward with what God has given you. If you are using it to build to bless, to strengthen the body of Christ, then you are a good steward of what the Lord has given you. Now, what if I only have one spiritual gifting and other people have four, five, and six? You could have five, five, and not use them all, and you're not a good steward. Even though, okay, you might be using two, which is double somebody with one, but if God's given you five and you're not using those five gifts to serve the body, 
You're not a good steward of it. And if you've been given one and you're using that one, well done, good and faithful servants. And that's the crazy thing. We, we look and we think about like, how do, how do I use my gifting? Who am I supposed to serve? We serve Christ through serving his body. And sometimes that can be in the areas of outreach and evangelism outside of the walls. It can be within the walls. The walls are just made from menards. I mean, it's two by fours and drywall for all I know. You can get 11% off on certain weekends. <laughs> this building is not the church. This is where we meet. We, we are the church. And use the gifting that God has given you to serve the body, to build up the body, to strengthen the body, to bless the body. But we can't compare. We can't fight with one another. We can't set false expectations on one another. That's only going to lead to failure. And that's not kingdom living. But to show unexpected grace to one another. Why? Because he showed unexpected grace to us. So, Father, we love you. We trust you even when it doesn't make sense. And I pray that each of us would fight back those negative thoughts and fight back the sin in our heart and our mind as we... as. Sometimes we're prone to compare and to look and to feel um, not content with what you have given us and what you have called us to. But I pray that you would give us, as we have opportunity, situations and moments to use our giftings to serve you through serving your body into this community, Lord. Give us that kind of faith. And I pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Fill us afresh again. That you are a giver of good gifts. And so we keep our eyes ever focused on you, Lord. Use us. That we would be useful vessels in your hands. We want that kind of faith. Individually, corporately, and focused in unity on you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.